Well, the story of Christmas is really the story of the incarnation, has nothing to do with Santa Claus. However, Santa does provide some dumb trivia. For example, what do you call people who are afraid of Santa Claus? Claustrophobic. Yeah, dumb, I said, right? What do you call a kid who doesn't believe in Santa? A rebel without a clause. Yeah, groan, groan. Now we're hearing the camels groan, right? I don't know if you caught this, though, in the news, but there's still the controversy over a Charlie Brown Christmas uh, TV special. Atheists are pretty bugged and offended because Linus quotes from Luke chapter 2 in, in the show. And so they want to stop it from playing and all of that. And I say, wah, 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 wah. That's what I say about that. Get over it. A few years ago, Obama actually defended the show and he said, we need the message of that TV show because the tiny trees need love too. And I thought, no, Mr. President, the meaning of it is, the true meaning of Christmas is the birth of Jesus. <laughs> he didn't get that right. Well, the Bible is a story of, uh, at Christmas of the incarnation. And here's what I mean by that. God left heaven. He was born in Bethlehem. He took on a human body, though sinless and took our place and then died and rose again. In that baby, in that man, he revealed himself, John chapter 1 tells us, so we could see what God is like. And then secondly, through the work upon the cross, he forgave our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. Reminds me of the three guys that went to one of those all-you-can-eat barbecue rib restaurants, and they chowed down for an hour, huge pile of bones on the table, you know, all the barbecue sauce and potatoes, you know, salad and all that. And when they were done, they just picked up everything and threw it in the trash. Well, they were about to leave, and one of the guys could not find his car keys. So they looked around, and they couldn't find them, and so realized that they had probably thrown the keys out with the rib bones into the trash. So they had one choice to make. They had to dumpster dive. So a couple of the guys dove into the trash, they got slimy, they got messy, they got all disgusting, and sure enough, at the bottom of the can, there were the keys, though in the process, they got covered with the slime. Well, in a weird way, that is a picture of the incarnation. Jesus left heaven, and he was born in Bethlehem and became a man, and you could say he dove into the dumpster of humanity and became covered with our sin and our slime. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin. He was covered with our filth and murder and hatred and selfishness and anger and perversion. And then was judged and cursed in our place. Tortured and nailed to a cross by the Romans. And then God himself poured out his wrath upon his son. He was separated from God in a way we'll never fully understand. He dies and then third day he rises victorious. So the good news of Christmas is God came to this dirty earth to show you that he's not afraid of yours and to save us from our sins. Now, I'm going to read a few verses from the account in Luke chapter 2. We're going to jump right in the middle of the Christmas record. In verse 8, it says this. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood above them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. 
For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Now those are familiar verses to most of us. Let me set the scene quickly. And then I find something strange in these verses that always uh, challenges me. They're familiar verses. We know the story. Put it in context. Joseph and Mary have now arrived in Bethlehem by verse 8. They were forced there by Herod's taxation. They got to the inn or the Airbnb or whatever it was and found that it was so crowded there was really no place for them to stay. And so the innkeeper offered them a stable. And that night, Mary, no more than 16 years old, gave birth to her first son and then wrapped him up and laid him in a stone trough or stone feeding manger. Now we have a romantic picture in our mind of the manger. Typically when you see it in a nativity set, it's always made of wood. And maybe that's true. But more likely, mangers in that day were made out of stone. I got a picture to show you. Ignore the handsome man behind that right there. But um, that is actually a first century manger that was on the mountain of Megiddo where Solomon had his stables, and uh, that is actually a manger. They were actually, not, not a lot of wood in Israel, especially in those days, and so they carved them out of solid rock, which meant it would have been a stone feeding trough with animal saliva on it, if you want the whole thing. By the way, the other picture, uh, I found Bigfoot. <laughs> so uh, that's actually on Caesarea by the sea. I mean, that is huge, just as big as a man. So one, one mystery's been solved tonight. Now, verse 8, it tells us that they, the shepherds were out in the fields of Bethlehem. The shepherds were taking care of their flocks. We're told in the record that the angel of the Lord appears and makes the announcement that there's good news of great joy, that the promised Messiah has been born, and he has come to be a Savior. Now, we know the fuller picture. Jesus came to save us by dying for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Those are all familiar to us. But great joy? Not for Joseph and Mary or the shepherds. In fact, it must have seemed odd to them because there wasn't a lot of joy in Bethlehem or in Israel that night. For example, Rome was still ruling the world in that day with an iron fist and a brutal army. They were controlling and taxing everybody. So any joy that anybody had on that uh, weekend, if you will, that Rome had stolen it from them. And then consider Mary and Joseph. What a tough start they had. Uh, they got engaged, and then that was interrupted by an angel visitation telling Mary she was going to be pregnant miraculously. And Joseph didn't get the whole story until later, so I'm sure he wasn't rejoicing. He was pretty upset and probably nearly ended the marriage. And if that were not bad enough, they have to go 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the ninth month of Mary's pregnancy riding a donkey. And I'm sure Mary did not say, oh, joy. In fact, I did the math. That's 128 potty stops on the way between the two cities. They get to Bethlehem, everybody's angry, the inn is jammed, and they're forced to give birth in a stable. And those of you that are moms here tonight, can you imagine pushing out your first baby in that kind of environment? I I'm sure it must have been a real challenge. Not a lot of joy going on uh, that night. And then the news of Jesus Christ's uh, birth spread, 
And when Herod got word that there was a new king in town and it wasn't him, a rival king was now coming, a threat to his authority, then he goes on a murdering rampage and kills the babies in Bethlehem. And so there was a lot of sorrow and weeping and a lot of grieving parents when Jesus was born. Not your hallmark Christmas that people envision sometimes. Not the most wonderful time of the year. And some of you can relate to that. Christmas, for some, can be a tough time of year. Sometimes at Christmas, people are lonely or are missing loved ones that are now absent or their families are splintered by divorce or by difficult custody issues. And sometimes Christmas just reminds us of the heartache and the things that we're missing. And statistically, to bum you out even more, did you know that people die uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas more than any other time of the year? Statistically, it's natural causes and accidents and so on, and even suicide is the highest this time of year. And you're glad you came to church now, right? Well, in spite of all that, I'm convinced that the angels were right. There was great joy that night. Let me define what the Bible means by joy. Joy is not happiness. That word comes from happenstance. It's dependent upon circumstances, meaning that happiness comes when, I, when things go my way or I'm successful or healthy or liked and appreciated. Joy is not happiness. Joy is strange. It's not dependent upon circumstances. It shows up when things are good, but it also shows up in the very worst of circumstances imaginable. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus died on the cross, and I'm sure that was not a fun experience. But the Bible tells us that joy buoyed him when he was suffering there as he was looking forward to what the cross would accomplish and that you and I would be part of his family. So joy is not happiness, and it's not just a feeling. Feelings are fickle. They come and go. They're like seasons. They, they're always changing. You know, our Constitution guarantees the pursuit of happiness, but it doesn't guarantee you'll actually catch any. That's a reality. And there's an old country song. You remember this one? Uh, looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, I think it's also true about joy. People are looking for joy in all the wrong places. They think it's more money. It's a better job, it's a better house or a new car, even a new relationship. But you know, Christmas morning, your kids will prove to you that that's not true. You know, you're all around the you know, living room or whatever, and they're all excited, and you give them a present, and they tear it to shreds and all that. And after they, the excitement you know, wears off, you know, 30 seconds later or less, then they're saying, where's the next one? And many adults, I find, suffer from the next thing syndrome. And all we're, all we're finding out and what we're discovering is that God, there's a God-shaped hole in every heart. And no physical thing, no possession, no human relationship, there's no experience in this world that can ever fill that God-shaped hole except the Lord himself. Now, joy is real and available, but let me just share three quick thoughts with you about this great joy. First of all, joy comes from heaven. That's what our text says. The angel said, I bring you great joy of, of what's happening on earth from God, if you will. It's a heavenly thing. It's a not of this world kind of a thing. It comes from a savior. It's the byproduct of being made right with God through Jesus Christ. 
In fact, in the Psalms, you hear the psalmist say, Restore me to the joy of my salvation. Having received Christ, there's a joy that comes with that. Amy Carmichael, a very prolific writer, said, The crib and the cross always go together. In other words, joy is always rooted, not just in his birth, but in his work upon a cross. His birth and his death are what bring us joy. And real joy comes from having your sins forgiven, for embracing the God who made you, recognizing that God loves you, and having the assurance that when you'll die, you'll go to heaven. And more than that, joy is the state of a forgiven soul, meaning that joy is produced by the presence of God's Spirit within the heart of someone who believes in Jesus. One man described this this way as, it's an inner voice that settles me, that assures me, that lifts my mind, that those circumstances may say differently that God is in control, that God loves me, and that God can be trusted. When our kids were real small, we had a, they would sing a song. My wife taught them a lot of little Sunday school songs, and one was called, uh, Joy is the Flag Flown High in the Castles of My Heart. I can still hear the tune. I won't sing it for you. That would ruin your Christmas. But it's true. When Jesus is residing in your castle, in your heart, then the Holy Spirit brings joy as evidence that he is living there. By the way, did you know the Bible teaches that you can increase joy in your life? Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. In other words, as you abide in your relationship with Christ, as you grow in that relationship, the fruit of that, the natural result of that, is a deep joy that will characterize your life. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4 says, These things I have written to you that your joy may be full. John says that I've written the truth of God's word and the gospel to you in a letter form. And if you feed on that, if you focus on that, he said, then you also have a fullness of joy. And I find this to be true. When a Christian is growing in his walk with the Lord and consistently in the Bible, joy oozes out of their life. So first of all, joy comes from heaven. It comes from God. Secondly, the joy that comes from God is strong. Now, we're in a study of Nehemiah on Sunday mornings here. When we get to chapter 8, when the Jews finally finish the wall, they're celebrating, and, the, and there's still some weeping going on. And the Lord spoke to them and said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I like that verse. Part of it is God was happy that they had endured, but part of it, too, was God's joy gave them the strength to endure. I find that joy is not only deep, but it's very strong. It overpowers pain. It conquers guilt. It smacks down discouragement. One man said, joy will stare down and defeats life's greatest difficulties, trials, and sorrows. Joy is even bigger than death. One Christian artist wrote these words. These are great words. He said, joy is more powerful than sorrow, more potent than pain. Joy is harmless and yet like a hurricane in that it frees the inmates from the asylum by driving them sane. <laughs> I like that. I've seen that happen in people's life. You know, they, people come to Christ with deep hurts and all kinds of problems, shackled by psychological pain, and then they receive Christ, and over time, as they get to know him, the joy of the Lord begins to do its work, and they become whole, and God drives them sane. 
think that's really wonderful. So joy comes from heaven. It's stronger also. And thirdly, joy shows up in the strangest of places. Not just in the fields of Bethlehem. Sometimes joy shows up in the worst of circumstances. For example, in Genesis 21, Abraham and Sarah have been promised a baby, a son that would inherit the promises that God made to Abraham. Well, they prayed for that baby for 25 years. Finally, Abraham was 100 and she was 90. And at that point, they've lost all hope of a baby coming. Well, in that year, an angel shows up and says to Abraham and Sarah, this time next year, you're going to hold a son. And everybody started laughing. It was the laugh of, uh, you know, uh, incredulous. Are you kidding me? Well, a year later, that miracle baby showed up and everybody was laughing for joy. So they named the baby Isaac, which means laughter. And I love that story because maybe tonight you're struggling with doubts or you're in some deep trial or uh, in, in, you know, going through a painful experience or you've made some bad decisions and as a result of it, you find yourself in a mess. Well, here's the good news. You can give your mess to him and who knows, next year at this time, there will be miracles and you'll be laughing. I remember the day I got married. That was a day of joy, too. I remember when she appeared at the back of the room, and I, I literally mouthed these words, though not out loud. I thought, for me? And I, I, I wanted to say, quick, before she changes her mind. You know. And then, so we got married that day, and uh, boy, uh, the joy that she has brought into my life has lasted for 45 years. And then in contrast, about 20 years ago, uh, we were um, in New Jersey, pastoring back there, and a very close family to our family back there, on one night, both of her parents were killed in a car accident with a drunk driver. So we were forced to go down to the hospital that night and stay all night with them. But I want, you to I want to tell you, I witnessed something there that left a real mark on me. I saw the peace of God and the joy of the Lord overpower that crisis. It was, a, it was a incredible experience to be there and watch how good God was, how God met them in that moment. And I drove home that next morning with tears of joy going down my face because of what I got to see, knowing that they were both in heaven, and to see God's strength actually demonstrated in a family that was facing a crisis. Joy shows up in some of the craziest places. So this Christmas Eve, or this Christmas Eve Eve, I want to bring you good news of great joy. Joy is real. It's available. It's powerful and surprising. But here's the reality. You can't have real joy without Jesus. Both Christmas and life are hollow and empty without him. Life without Christ, life without forgiveness, ends up being disappointing it will leave you empty and guilty and lonely and fearful. Read about a lady named Dorothy Fletcher. Uh, she actually had a heart attack on a flight to Florida. So the flight attendant was trying to help her as she was struggling in her chair and finally got on the PA system and said, are there any doctors on the plane? And 15 cardiologists stood up. They were on their way to a medical conference in Florida and, and Dorothy got everything she needed 
ended up getting surgery on the other end and survived and had a lot of joy. Talk about good timing, huh? Well, I bring that up because sometimes we're like that. We need a little surgery. Sometimes we, we, we look at our own heart. I, you know, I realize, look, I, I need to be right with God. I need a do-over. That's kind of what Jesus was talking about when he talked about being born again, that we need to have a, a fresh start, a, a new birth, a do-over in life. And you can do that by receiving Christ as your Savior. And I'd like you all to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. This is not pressure. I can't think of a better present to give anybody at Christmas than to give them an opportunity to receive Christ and his forgiveness by inviting Christ into, your, into their life. So if that is something you'd like to do tonight, you're ready to receive Christ as your Savior, I'd just like you to pray a simple prayer with me uh, and, and just be as sincere as you possibly can. And just, uh, the words are not important, and just invite Christ in your life by saying something like this. Dear Jesus, I recognize that I am I'm not right with you, and I have sinned against you, and I am so sorry for doing so. But I heard the good news tonight, that there is a Savior who died in my place and made it possible for me to experience forgiveness. So right here. Right now, Jesus, I invite you into my life. Come into my heart. Give me a new heart. Wash my sins away. Give me that gift of eternal life. And then help me to walk with you until I see you face to face in heaven. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You pray that prayer for the first time afterwards. Uh, up over here on the left-hand side, we have some materials we'd love to give you that explain what it means to be a Christian and how to walk with them. Okay, now, let's have the ushers go ahead and pass out the candles. And uh, we're going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing a couple of songs now by candlelight. So parents will uh, in uh, encourage you to supervise the flames <laughs> as best you can. 